Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Donald Trump has been indicted, and a couple of conservative professors have said, well, he's ineligible to be president because of the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address so I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. That's mcclanahanacademy.com. If you're listening in August of 2023, use the coupon code Jackson and get $70 off my latest class at McClanahan Academy, Reading Andrew Jackson. It's an awesome class. You're going to get Andrew Jackson in his own words, and you're going to find out a lot of information about Jackson you may not have known. I'll also talk about why Jackson screwed up America in that class, but it's an awesome class. $70 off. Use the coupon code Jackson. Of course, purchase any of my classes there and keep this podcast free of charge. You can also go to Spotify for podcasts or subscribe there. You can click on the little heart button under this video, the super thanks button. If you're watching on YouTube, go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. Throw a few pennies my way that way. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. That does help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, big news in the last couple of weeks. Trump's been indicted. We know we're going to have a show trial in, in Georgia. There's a, a news coming out now that the uh, the legislature in Georgia is actually going to show a little bit of backbone. They're going to try to force the issue and perhaps even impeach the attorney general because of the nature of the trial, right? I mean, th- things were leaked before the grand jury had even issued a statement. So there was all kinds of strange things going on there. We know it's a it's a political show trial. Uh, that's really the issue. It's why people are calling this a third world country. I've talked about that in this program before. It's not third world, it's Rome. We're looking at Rome right now. And that happens when you get to these super states where the the culture is broken down to a point where there aren't any there aren't any restraints on what the power of the government can do. It's all about power to begin with. So you get these kind of things going on. Corruption breeds these more corruption and it becomes a great big mess. But you've got a couple of quote-unquote conservatives now who have come out and said that Donald Trump should be ineligible for president because of the 14th Amendment. And this was big news. Keith Olbermann with two N's was out there saying that this is it. You know, he gets on his little, his little corner of his house and, and uh, because he doesn't have, I mean, look, for me, that's all I've ever had. But Keith Olbermann was a big name for a long time. He's been reduced to a hallway in his house to record his show. Because nobody really cares about Keith Oberman with two ends anymore. But 
He gets on his little program, his little soapbox, and says, here it is, conservatives. Conservatives are saying Trump needs to be, and uh, he, can't, he can't be president. He, he should be, he, it's insurrection. And again, front page news for a while because of this conservative, quote unquote, journal article, a couple of law professors. The real thing that, that got people's attention was that these people are part of the Federalist Society. And of course, the Federalist Society for years has been painted as this awful organization that produces people like Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh. It, pr it produces these kind of people, right? It's Clarence Thomas. That's the Federal Society. It's this mill that you get all these horrible judges that do all kinds of horrible things in the United States. So when two Federal Society speakers or affiliated members come out and say that Trump committed insurrection, oh my gosh, these, this is it. Now, what have I told you about American conservatism over and over again on this program? About, you have to be careful with American conservatism, particularly the West Coast Straussians, because these people are operating under the same parameters as the left. Namely, they're all Lincolnian nationalists. And when you start with Lincoln, you end with this kind of nonsense. So I'm going to talk about this journal article that they wrote, and it's hilarious. Really, it is hilarious and how they do this. I think these people, just like Alan Gelzo and some of the other people, I mean, genuflect to Abraham Lincoln every day and put holy water on Lincoln and do all kinds of things. I mean, they, they probably go and you know, uh, light incense at the Lincoln Memorial, maybe have a sacrifice or two on the steps. I don't know. Uh, but this is, this is who these people are. They aren't really conservative. Not in the sense that they're actually trying to conserve the original Federal Republic or the original Constitution. They're not conservative in any way. And I'll explain that in their, in their journal article. They, they, they masquerade as originalists or trying to conserve something. But what they really are are 19th century leftists. That's what they are. They're 19th century leftists. They're 19th century radical Republicans. I've said on you know social media, when you scratch a woke totalitarian today, you get New England Republicans. When you champion the 1860s Republican Party, you get woke authoritarians. Woke authoritarian totalitarians. This is what you get. And what these people are doing is unknowingly, I think, playing right in the hands of Keith Oberman with two ends. Or these other thugs on the left who really want to control everything you do. That was, when I talked about Oliver Anthony, that was the message that people got. It said somebody else, somewhere else, is trying to control what you're doing. And they're doing things that are in, not in your best interest all the time. All the time. It's about an arbitrary power, and that's what these people are. I mean, look, the progressive totalitarians are an arbitrary power. They don't like it that somebody somewhere is doing something that they don't want them to do, and they have to force them not to do it. And you get people on the right that believe this thing, too. I mean, these are, these are two sides of the same coin. Now, on a local level, on a much smaller scale, some of these things would work. Because you have a political culture, a political community, you can you can do those things. And there's, look, in so many ways, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start bridging it out higher and higher, further and further away from the location of power, right, which really is 
in, in our system, right? The people have power when you keep pulling it away from that and then you force things on them. You create more and more problems, particularly when the culture that's forcing on someone else is not the same culture that they're trying to... I mean, it's, it's different, right? So you've got a cultural imperialism taking place. All right, so I digress on that. But let me talk about this piece. I'm going to start actually with, not with the, the uh, article itself, but with a piece by David Badish. And the, the tag on this is the new civil rights movement. The new civil rights movement. Now that's, that's actually revealing. The new civil rights movement. You see, what we're seeing in America right now really is a third reconstruction. It's a third effort to arrogate all power to the center and control everyone else. The first Reconstruction really was a, a revolution. As people on the left, which these conservative professors cite, has explained. Eric Foner has come out and laid all the cards on the table. 1868, the 14th Amendment, was... A second American Revolution. This is what the Beards said in their book, the Beard, the Progressive Beards, in their book on quote unquote American civilization. We had a revolution in 1861. And it wasn't from the South, as these dopey law professors like to say. It was from the North. You see, I don't think these people really think about it. They don't think this stuff through. Why? Because of Abraham Lincoln. And I don't care if these guys teach law. From a historical standpoint, this is where the law is just ridiculous. From a historical standpoint, their argument is so weak, it's like punching through wet paper. It's, it's horribly weak. All the evidence is against what they're saying. All the hard evidence is against it. Except for one guy, Abraham Lincoln. And so see, what? where is the logic? They can't even see the logical fallacy in all this. It's appeal to authority. It's appeal to authority, which is, if you took a, a logic class 101, it's one of the great fallacies of logic, appeal to authority. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain how that works in this. And it's, it's so easy to punch through. But, oh, listen to the way that David Badish starts this thing. Again, this is the new civil rights movement. Two leading, highly credentialed, conservative constitutional law professors say the U.S. Constitution already disqualifies former President Donald Trump from holding office, including being president because of his participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. Now, first of all, he didn't try to overthrow the election. He questioned the election, as anyone in Congress could do. And he asked Congress to do his job. He asked Mike Pence to pause and listen to objections, which was not allowed. But they did it. I mean, this is the same thing the Democrats did in 2016, he was asking to question this. There are things, and look, we can say, and I, I've said it on this program before, 
There were a lot of irregularities in 2020. A lot. I mean, these things have been pointed out. A lot of irregularities. Can you actually prove that there is any fraud? It's going to be very difficult. We know, for example, there was fraud in 1960. We know that happened. Richard Nixon sent in teams of lawyers into places like Chicago, where dead people were voting, into Texas. And they couldn't prove enough to get the election of 1960 changed. They, they couldn't do it. So, John F. Kennedy's elected president. We know that these things happen. American elections are designed for fraud. And Democrats, for years, after 2016, they wanted to have all these controls and do this because they think Trump cheated and the Russians and all this. But when they can pull it off in 2020, they don't, I don't know, our elections are safe and secure. Are they? I mean, this is something that the left had talked about for years. We didn't have safe, secure elections. Now they win in 2020. Trump says our elections aren't safe, secure. Oh, no, they're safe and secure. You see the hypocrisy and the duplicity and all these things. It's what people are tired of. But it's, we know that there were some irregularities. And we also know that the Democrats, for example, in Georgia, out-hustled the Republicans. They do it all the time. The Republicans set up the system that the Democrats could abuse in Georgia in 2020. Now, they've tried to close some of those loopholes, and maybe they have. But we also know when the Republicans run bad candidates like Herschel Walker in Georgia, they're not going to win. It's not that Georgia is a, a purple state or a blue state. It's still a red state. But when you run someone who's incompetent, they're not going to win. Kemp won by a landslide in Georgia in 2020 against uh, former Governor Stacey Abrams. She was the legitimate, she was the, the real governor for a time when she challenged the election. She didn't lose. But then she really, I mean, so she was really the governor, and then she lost in, in 2020. So, but uh, we are looking at a system that's designed for corruption. So, of course, I mean, there's there's going to be... But look at how he said but, said this, right? So there was no overthrow of the 2020 election. But look at how he phrases these professors. Two leading, highly credentialed, conservative constitutional law professors. That's a f logical fallacy. Because of these, who these people are, well, they're correct then. Even though their argument, like I said, is like wet paper. In a 126-page University of Pennsylvania Law Review paper published Wednesday, University of Chicago Law School professor William Baud and University of St. Thomas School of Law professor Michael Stokes Paulson introduced their work by writing, quote, Now, this is from their work. They also said something that's really, really funny in the beginning of their work. I'm going to go through their work. I'm going to point out a couple things that are just really ridiculous. In this. But this is from the beginning of the paper. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forbids holding office by former office holders who then participate in insurrection or rebellion. Because of a range of misperceptions and mistaken assumptions, Section 3's full legal consequences have not been appreciated or enforced. This article corrects those mistakes by setting forth a full sweep and force of Section 3. You know what they do at the beginning of this paper? They cite Eric Foner. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When you're a conservative, quote-unquote, like Karl Rove, or these dopes, Baud and Paulson, and you're citing Eric Foner, 
you've already lost. Eric Foner is a communist revolutionary whose entire goal is to disrupt the traditional American legal and political order through history. This is what he wants to do. The only book he's ever written that was halfway decent was Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. He has disrupted the entire historic profession. He's controlled it with an iron fist, particularly when it comes to reconstruction studies. And so everything that's produced now has to basically have Eric Foner or a Foner-esque stamp of approval because he knew that was the way he would change America. Get enough dope historians who are dim-witted to start arguing from his positions and you change the narrative of America. It becomes the new civil rights movement. You see, this is what's happening with this kind of thing. The piece continues, Badish continues, appearing to push back against claims made previously by others in defense of a second Trump presidential term. They write, quote, Section 3 remains an enforceable part of the Constitution, not limited to the Civil War, and not effectively repealed by 19th century amnesty legislation. They say Congress need to do nothing to implement, Trump, to implement Trump's immediate disqualification from office. Quote, Section 3 is self-executing, operating as an immediate disqualification from office without the need for additional action by Congress. It can and should be enforced by every official, state, or federal who judges qualifications. So what they're saying is Congress doesn't need to do anything here. The courts don't need to do anything here. You know who needs to do this? State election officials. So essentially what the states do, you have election officials, and they say, all right, uh, Donald Trump is disqualified because of the 14th Amendment. Because I say so. Because he engaged in an insurrection. And so therefore, we're not putting him on the ballot. What they're saying is that they're going to leave it to political partisans in the states, hacks, to say, well, I don't think this person is qualified because they participated in an insurrection. Now, the key is that Trump has been indicted for this. Doesn't mean he's been convicted of anything. So at this point, if Trump is not convicted of this, right, if he's not convicted of insurrection, I think that the courts are going to have a really hard time. What, what these people are trying to do, though, what these dopey legal scholars are trying to do is set a precedent here in this legal journal that they're trying to whisper into the ears of the judges that this is really insurrection and rebellion. When you look at the paper, that's the goal. Trump committed insurrection and rebellion. These people don't want Trump in there. They don't want Trump to be the nominee. Fine. But they're trying to whisper into enough ears into, so enough judges get the hint that they should convict him of this. And therefore, Congress need do nothing. Because at that point, the states could say, he's been convicted of insurrection. Even if he wasn't sentenced to anything, he's convicted of insurrection. He's an insurrectionist. Section 3 of, our, of uh, Amendment 14 says that I can say he's not on the ballot. I don't care if he gets the Republican nomination. He's not on the ballot. Now, the problem with that is you're not going to get every state to do this. You won't. And I can tell you right now, this could be very uh, dangerous politically for America in some ways because the Republican states aren't going to do it. 
Red states won't do this. They'll keep Trump on the ballot. The blue states can look at this article and say, oh yeah, we got section three of Amendment 14 right here. We're going to remove Trump. So California takes Trump off the ballot. Takes him off the ballot. Washington, Oregon, take Trump off the ballot. Uh, Massachusetts takes Trump off the ballot. You get the far left coast and you get the deep north taking Trump off the ballot. Is he going to be taken off the ballot in all the other states? Is he going to be taken off the ballot in Florida? No. How about Alabama? No. I don't even think DeSantis would have him do it. I, I think DeSantis, even though he's run, he even if he doesn't get the nomination, I don't think he would be bold enough to do it because it would be seen as uh, a a move, a personal move, right? So I don't think he would do it. Is he going to be taken off the ballot in Texas? No. New York might even be questionable, but I think they would probably do it. New York probably would. So you're going to get the deep north to take him off the ballot. He's not going to be taken off the ballot in most states. Most states that Trump would maybe win. So what happens? You're still going to have an electoral college crisis. Because what happens if Trump wins with 270 electoral college votes in states that didn't remove him from the ballot? The states that did remove him, of course, they lose. What are you looking at now? That is a recipe for political disaster. So what these dopey dopersons are doing in this piece is absolutely dangerous. It's not to say that if somebody really did commit insurrection, trying to lead an army or something against uh, the United States government, which Trump did not do, Trump didn't commit, commit insurrection or rebellion in any way, even though they tried to to frame it that way. And the P, they argue in 126 pages, this is what Trump did. But again, it's like it's easy to it's like punching through wet paper. It's just they're ridiculous arguments. This is going to set up a very dangerous situation, potentially, if the states actually started doing this. The piece continues, the law professors add, to the extent of any conflict with prior constitutional rules, Section 3 repeals, supersedes, or simply satisfies them. This includes the rules against bills of attainder or ex post facto laws, the due process clause, and even the free speech principles of the First Amendment. Fourth, Section 3 covers a broad range of conduct against the authority of the constitutional order, including many instances of indirect participation or support as aid or comfort. It covers a broad range of former offices, including the presidency. And in particular, it disqualifies former President Donald Trump and potentially many others because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. Now, notice they just throw that out there as, this is fact, this is what happened. It's not fact. That's not what happened. Questioning an election is not trying to overthrow the election. Questioning the election is not trying to overthrow the government. At all. But this is how it's being framed. The New York Times notes that both professors are active members of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group and proponents of originalism, the method of interpretation that seeks to determine the Constitution's original meaning. You can't be an originalist and believe in Abraham Lincoln. It's impossible. It's just like when I say that you know there are 14th Amendment, what these people are, are 14th Amendment originalists. They're dangerous. I'm telling you now. These are the Randy Barnett type conservatives. They're dangerous. Quote unquote conservatives. They might hold some 
uh, positions that conservatives would agree with. Maybe they're you know they they don't like some of the uh, some of the cancel culture and the social justice stuff. Maybe they're you know maybe they got some of those things. But these people are dangerous politically. They're dangerous legally because they're operating from a position that's incorrect. As Raoul Berger, I mean, I think uh, slayed the entire argument in favor of incorporation and 14th Amendment originalism. He just destroys it. He destroys it. This is Judge Jackson, the current Supreme Court Justice. Judge Jackson is a 14th Amendment originalist. She's on the left. These people are leftists. If you agree, if you are a 14th Amendment originalist, you cannot be a conservative. If you read this Randy Barnett book, Eric Foner might as well have written it. James Oakes might as well have written it. And they rely on these people for their defense, for their evidence. Those people are Marxist revolutionaries. You're already setting yourself up for disaster. Stephen G. Calabresi, a law professor at Northwestern and Yale and a founder of the Federalist Society, the Times adds, called the article a tour de force. No, it's not. Again, it's like wet paper. It's not a tour de force. When you rely on Lincoln for originalism, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to point out a couple of things that just completely destroy the strength of the article. From a, from, from a, from a defense position, from a historical position, they have no evidence but one person. That's appeal to authority. And just because the idiot... The ordinary Western man, Abraham Lincoln, became president. Doesn't mean he has any more authority to speak on this than anyone else. And when only one person is your evidence? What do you have there? You have one person to say this. And what do you have there? Even people disagree with Lincoln in his own party. His own party. Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot, Professor Calabresi told the Times. And each of the 50 states' secretaries of state has an obligation to print ballots without his name on them. Calabresi also said that they may be sued for refusing to do so. This is the founder of the Federalist Society, never Trumper. Now, uh, look at what he says here. So if the secretaries of state refused to take Trump off the ballot. Now, Trump has not been convicted of anything. Anything. So what they're saying is because of an opinion that he committed insurrection. Rebellion. In our opinion, this is what happened. He's ineligible. But again, he's not been convicted of anything. Now, if he is convicted, then you're going to run into this question. And I still think that these secretaries of state in these red states aren't going to take him off the ballot. And you're going to get a situation where Trump, because he's going to get the nomination. Look, it's going to happen. Where Trump might still win the presidency. That is, if this kind of stuff goes through, that is going to be a major crisis. The Democrats would not even leave. I'm, I'm telling you right now, if that happened, the Democrats wouldn't leave office. They wouldn't leave. They wouldn't. They would not vacate the executive mansion. They wouldn't do it. Or they would try to um, 
Uh, of course, they're going to try to arrest Trump. I mean, this is this is the ultimate goal. They're going to try to throw him in jail, right? So what happens if this happens, though, and these secretaries of state, they just leave him on there because they say it's a political show trial and we're not going to agree with it, and boom, Trump gets elected. He's in jail. What happens? You could see some really strange scenarios pointing, pointing in that direction. I, there's no historical precedent for this in the United States except for Griswold of Connecticut, um, who was, um, or the the uh, the issue in Connecticut when you had a a member of the House elected while in jail. I mean, there's really no precedent. Eugene Debs ran for president when he was in jail, but there really isn't any precedent for this. Former U.S. Appeals Court Judge. J. Michael Lutig, a star witness during a televised hearing of the U.S. House Select Committee on of the January 6th attack, also praised the article. He says it promises to be of monumental and historic, if not also contemporary, importance to constitutional law. No. It's based on stupidity. I'll, so I'll finish out the article, then I'll read the parts that are just completely laughable in the piece. Noah Bookbinder. What a great last name, by the way. It shows you that last names for a long time were based on what people did, right? Their profession. Noah Bookbinder. Noah Bookbinder. The president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, called Crew, notes the two conservative law professors cite Crew's work in their article. He calls it extremely significant that two leading conservative legal scholars put out a piece today arguing the section that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment remains enforceable and disqualifies Donald Trump from office. Again, for what? Now, what what these two dopey legal scholars argue is that it doesn't really matter if Trump has been convicted or not because the public meaning of insurrection and rebellion was formulated by who? Well, none other than Abraham Lincoln himself. All right, so let me get to a couple things. I don't want to drag this podcast out for a long period of time. But in the introduction, uh, these two... Baud and Paulson to conservatives, right? To conservatives and originalists and Federalist Society uh, legal scholars, West Coast Strauzy and Lincolnians. In their introduction, the first thing in the introduction is this Section 3 has long since faded into history. Who wrote that? Eric Foner. And it comes from uh, the second founding, how the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution. When you cite Eric Foner, you are in trouble. First, uh, the, the first paragraph is not important. The second paragraph, that's not a quote, says this. This is I, the sec, I laughed out loud. This section, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, was designed to address a particular historical situation, an acute problem arising in the aftermath of the Civil War. States in the South had purported unconstitutionally, in parentheses, to secede from the Union. They had purported to form the so-called Confederate States of America in rebellion against the authority of the U.S. Constitution, and they had waged a bloody four-year war of rebellion against the United States. Yet even after the rebellion had been defeated, southern states had audaciously sent a Congress to serve as 
U.S. senators and representatives, men who had notoriously violated previously sworn oaths to support the U.S. Constitution by subsequently engaging in or supporting secession, rebellion, and civil war against the authority of the United States, to say nothing of those now serving again in their, in their state governments. Those men who arrived in Washington included several who had held prominent positions in the rebel confederacy, four confederate generals, four colonels, several confederate congressmen and members of confederate state legislatures, and even the vice president of the confederacy, Alexander Stevens. He cites Akil Reed Amar and, of course, Eric McKittrick, uh, Alan Gelzo. Again, what have you just got there? A who's who of Lincolnites. A who's, I mean, this is the most biased thing that you could ever, and of course it's coming from a conservative. When you got friends like these, who needs enemies? Secession wasn't unconstitutional. They can't prove it. They actually give you a note. This is where it gets really funny. So they cite, see Infranote 228 and sources cited there for saying that the South unconstitutionally seceded from the Union. They had formed the so-called Confederate States of America. So you go down to note 228. So let's just get down to note 228 because that's their, that's their, I mean, this is their power, right? The note 228. All right, so here we got to 228. For important accounts and discussion of Southern arguments for the constitutional propriety and validity of secession on a variety of asserted grounds, see James McPherson. Oh, yeah, James McPherson. Uh, Daniel Faber, Lincoln's Constitution. Michael Stokes Paulson, Lincoln and Judicial Authority. So he cites himself. So Michael Paulson cites himself. For a discussion of the legal arguments for secession, see me. <laughs> you can't make this up. See me. Because, I mean, I'm going to tell you. So when I'm going to cite myself here because I'm a scholar on this. Uh, and, and of course, he has to he has to identify how that is. So this is actually a law review article, Notre Dame law review. It's not a it's not a book. It's, it's not not any of that. It's a law review article, and he he defines it. Why setting for a Southern leader's constitutional arguments that Lincoln stands against the Dred Scott decision, against judicial supremacy, and against extension of slavery violated the judicially settled constitutional rights of slaveholding persons and states. Also, Kenneth Stamp. David Curie, et cetera, et cetera. For the case against the constitutionality of secession. So what they've done here is they've given you all these secondary sources about how secession is, what Southerners said about secession. They do give you one primary document. One. But for the case against the constitutionality, and that's Alexander H. Stevens in his uh, constitutional view of the late war between the states. There's plenty of stuff that is better than that. I don't know if these people read it. doesn't really matter. Because they wouldn't agree with it anyways. But for the case against it, you know, for the case against the constitutionality of secession, see generally, Abraham Lincoln, his writings, his speeches, his letters. Also, you know what else you should see about that? See Michael Stokes Paulson. <laughs> see me again. Right, I'm writing the essay. So, for, the, for those arguing for secession, see me. And for those arguing against secession, well, yeah, see me. 
the Civil War as a Constitutional Interpretation. Oh, also a Chicago Law Review article. Re uh, this is a book review. Reviewing Daniel Farber's Lincoln's Constitution. Distilling and building on Lincoln's arguments. Oh, also, uh, note that he also, see also, Paulson again, see me again, West Virginia, Super Note 127. Um, so see an article I wrote on a book review in another law journal and then a note in that law journal article. That's the argument that I'm making that secession is unconstitutional. You can't make this up. This is what academics do when they really don't have anything. That's what I said. It's like punching a hole through wet paper. This should be, if, if this was presented to me, if, if these two, quote, scholars were presenting this paper to me as a historian, and they said, here's the evidence. Something else I wrote. Well, no, that's not evidence. You need prime. Now, so they give you a primer. They give you Stevens. What about Bledsoe? What about Bledsoe? What about, I don't know, all the evidence that you could have that people thought secession was perfectly legal and valid at any point before 1861? What about all of that? And there's plenty of it, right? But Bledsoe's the best. He goes through all those arguments. There's others, though. So what about those people? No, no, no. Read Abraham Lincoln. You can't make this up. So they get down to the in, in much of the of the paper. I'm going to fast forward, skip over to a part, uh, just a little bit down uh, in this paper. I want to get to a part where it, they say contemporaneous public political legal usage. They said perhaps the best evidence of the public meaning of the terms insurrection, rebellion, and engage again as they came to be used in Section Three consists of their common and frequent public, political, and legal usage in the 1860s, the years immediately surrounding the adoption of the 14th Amendment, by a variety of actors, by President Abraham Lincoln in prominent speeches, messages, public letters, and proclamations, by Congress and major acts of legislation, and by the Supreme Court and the landmark decision in the prize cases. So basically, the meaning of this is defined by the 1860s Republican Party, but most importantly, by Abraham Lincoln. An extremely important contemporaneous source for understanding the public constitutional meaning of insurrection and rebellion in the 1860s is President Abraham Lincoln. You see, that just ends it right there. President Abraham Lincoln. Once Abraham Lincoln defines it, well, it's over. Because we should just bow and genuflect to the American demigod, Abraham Lincoln. There you go. You see, when you start with Lincoln... And you become a Lincolnite. This is what you get. This is why no conservative, a real conservative in America, should ever cite Abraham Lincoln. He wasn't a conservative. Lincoln wasn't preserving the Constitution. And what they're essentially saying here is that Lincoln, what they're almost admitting, they don't really admit it, but they are admitting it, is that the way that Lincoln defined these terms had to be clarified with an amendment to the Constitution because that was not the original meaning of the terms. You see, that's why we had the 14th Amendment. So what they've done is said that Lincoln is not an originalist. These people are 14th Amendment originalists. That's who they are. 
And where does he come up with these grand legal statements? Well, of course, his first annual, first inaugural address. Uh, how about uh, the the uh, public letter to Erastus Corning? And if you want these things, of course, I get uh, into this stuff in uh, reading Abraham Lincoln at McLeanahan Academy. I, I talk about these documents. Um, this is the problem with all of it. You go to Lincoln, it's one man. Now, of course, they say, well, but Congress said these things too, and the Supreme Court and the prize cases said these things. Uh-huh. Who are these people, generally? 1860s Republicans. It doesn't mean they had the only position on it. In fact, we know that Lincoln was in the and the Republican Party really was the minority party in America. Look at how they describe this this one paragraph, though. And I'm, I'm going to wrap this up here because, I mean, this is, when you read through this thing, this is where it becomes laughable. Their arguments are laughable. They cite themselves. Uh, Paulson cites himself again, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Commander-in-Chief Power, whatever the heck that is. In a Georgia Law Review, this commander-in-chief power. This is this fabricated out of thin air. Lincoln was making stuff up as he went. As, by the way, Benjamin Robbins Curtis pointed out, a Supreme Court justice during the war in the Emancipation Proclamation, that he was overstepping his, his constituted authority constituted authority. I mean, these people, Paulson is nuts. He's a Lincolnite. Bathed in Lincolnian holy water. That's what he is. He's nuts. Uh, what he says about, uh, in a June 12, 1863 public letter nominally addressed to Erastus Corning, Lincoln defended the military arrest of former Ohio Congressman Clement Vallandigham, a notorious racist and prominent Copperhead pro-South anti-Union Northerner who had made a public speech vehemently condemning the Emancipation Proclamation and the propriety of the Union's war effort. Eric Foner might as well have written that. This is how bad this stuff is. What is his, I mean, what does that, what do his views on race have to do with anything about the Constitution? But you throw that in there, that creates an emotional response. Oh, Blanningham's a racist. I can't like him. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was also a notorious racist. But that's okay. Because he had the right views on the Constitution. <laughs> And eventually he came around to the right way of thinking, right? But Vallandigham never did. Scopperhead, pro-South. Vallandigham was never pro-South. Never. He just didn't think the South should be coerced. He wasn't an anti-Union Northerner. No, no, no. He was a pro-Union Northerner. He believed in the original Constitution. It's a difference. But you see, these people can't, again, they can't get out of their own way. They're, they're dense in this way. Now, I'm not saying they're, they're stupid people. They're dopes, historically dense. But anyway, I've gone on too long with this, so we're going to stop there. But this is the kind of arguments these people make and why I'm saying that when you start with these positions, you get this kind of stuff. Right? These, these are the things that you get out of this, and it creates a dangerous historical environment where we all rely on one person, St. Abraham the Wise, Give us all of our constitutional learning and knowledge. And once we agree with St. Abraham the Wise, we come around to the correct way of thinking about America. And 
American politics. What a joke. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.